Well, good morning. Give you welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been called here to worship our great God. Now, let me draw your attention just to some quick announcements. One is this Thursday is the uh, Grief Share uh, event uh, for surviving the holidays. Uh, if, you, if you have lost a loved one or you know someone who's lost a loved one, this would be a great event to come to, and they can just call into the church and register for that. Uh, then uh, we're getting close to the Christmas season. And next Sunday, I believe, is when we'll begin prepping the sanctuary to decorate the church. And we're still needing, I guess, some volunteers. I think there's a sign-up sheet back there in the narthex if you can help with that either on Sunday, uh, Monday, or Tuesday. And then don't forget to put on the uh, your calendars. We're going to have our annual cantatum. And that'll be December the 13th. We'll have it twice on that day, and you'll be receiving more information for that. And let's prepare our hearts for worship. Revelation 4 in heaven, uh, John writes of what he saw there. 
After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. We have come before you, our great God. You are the one who sits upon that throne. And we have joined now with the elders, with those four beasts, with the uh, angels, with the saints who have gone before us to worship our great God who sits upon the throne. We come before you in the name of and through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the anointing of your spirit. And as we lift up our voices to you, as we worship you, you will take the light in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving we present before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Behold our God.
It's good, isn't it, to sing a hymn that puts everything in perspective, sitting all we've been going through. For our confession of faith, we're going to take a couple of questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism on the subject of faith. Christian, what is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace worked in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, by which the sinner, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the inability of himself and all other creatures to save him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but also receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness held forth in the gospel for the pardon of his sin and for the acceptance and accounting of himself as righteous in the sight of God for his salvation. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which always accompany it, nor because of the good works that are the fruits of it, nor is it the grace of faith or any act flowing from it were imputed to him for his justification, but only because it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we give you praise, the one who dwells in heaven. We give you praise that you are the one who is seated on the throne. We give you praise for that everlasting worship that takes place around the throne. And that we ourselves here this small group here in this sanctuary, may join in of that great worship of you. May we ever be faithful of it, to behold our God, to worship our God, and acknowledge that you are the one who sits upon the throne. We pray, our Father, and give you thanks and praise for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is equal with God and yet did not Hold on to it as something to be grasped, but made himself as one of us, came upon this earth, became our very servant upon the cross. And on that cross made atonement for our sins so that we, we who were but sinners, who were uh, enemies of yours, have been made now your children. And our own destiny is someday to ascend into that heaven and to be in that throne room to someday to behold of the great heavenly city as it comes down upon this earth and to see, to, to know, to be with our, our God, with the Lamb who has died for us. Thank you for that glorious vision. The God and the Lamb will be our temple 
The God and the Lamb will be our sun and our moon, will be our light for us. We pray for that day to come. We pray that we, meanwhile, would be found faithful in the service of your kingdom. That you would see us and, and, and find us to be faithful servants as we seek to win the lost, to bring others into your kingdom. As we seek to be a light in this community, a light in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on this earth, that we, your people, would do that will and show what it is to live lives that are faithful unto you. And so we pray for you to give to us today our daily bread, that we might serve you well. Feed us with the uh, the bread of your word. Feed us with the, the fellowship and the worship now that we may go forth ever more faithful in our service to you. We pray for healing for those who are sick among our people, who have loved ones who are sick, and we pray for your healing power upon them. Pray for their recovery. Pray for those who are facing great troubles and trials at this time, that you will grant them that uh, strong faith that will ever keep them faithful to you. Forgive us of our debts. Cause us to be those who easily forgive the debts of others. Lead us not into temptation. All the more we pray that you will deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the temptations of this world, the fears of this world. And we make this prayer acknowledging and knowing that to you belongs the kingdom and all the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen.
Myself, you be thinking of West Side Story or Barbara Streisand singing. You're not so old, and if you've seen the movie, you've seen the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader movie, you might think of Carrie Underwood singing at the end of that movie, that There's a Place for Us. Well, in either case, both songs are speaking of a longing that we all have, uh, a place for us where we, we just feel that we belong there where the, the troubles of this world, they, they're behind us, they can no longer touch us. It's a place that, that's permanent. And we never have to fear being uprooted from it. Well, our author tells us today of several other people who had this same longing and what it was enabled them to do. So we're in the, the by-faith chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, invite you to turn with me to Hebrews 11, 8 through 22, where you can use in your bulletin, there's an insert that has the text there as well. So we recall our author, he's taken us through a roll call of men and women of faith, and he's demonstrating what that faith enabled them to do and how it enabled them to please God. He opened up with a definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then you'll recall he gives an example of that, of the faith that we have that God is our creator. And then he illustrates through through men, through Abel, through Enoch, through Noah, how their faith, how their life of faith in responding to God enabled them to please God. And we saw that it is faith that is equated with righteousness, that it is faith that is necessary to please God. So our author now, he's going to move us to the age of the patriarchs, and he's going to demonstrate through them how faith in the promise of God, how that impacted their actions. He's going to start with Abraham. So look with me there in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, 
not knowing where he was going. And there are three points here that our author notes about Abraham's faith. First is his obedience. God gives the command to leave, and he obeys. He leaves. Secondly, he's acting on a promise. And it's the promise of receiving his inheritance, which, by the way, now hereafter will become the central theme for Israel. The promised land is their inheritance. They're either traveling to it, they're inhabiting it, they're being exiled from it, or they're returning to it. This land is what uh, is central in their hearts. But at this stage, it's point three to note here. And for Abraham, he's not simply being obedient, going into a land. He's going to unknown territory. Genesis 12.1 reads this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so, Abraham obeys by faith. He obeys God. He goes where, as we're told, he doesn't know. He's just trusting God's promise of an inheritance. Now, let's go into verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Okay, so Abraham is now, he's there, he's living in the promised land. But he's still living by faith. Now God has fulfilled his promise to put him in the land. He's provided an heir, Isaac, and then the next heir, Jacob. But even so, there's still little to be shown for him. Abraham is in the land, but he does not possess it. He has no control over it. He lives as a nomad in tents. And that promise of innumerable descendants, well, let's see, it's produced one son, one grandson. That's all he's got from this promised lineage of innumerable people like the grains of sand. Nevertheless, keeps his faith in God and his promise. How? By remaining in that land. Now we're going to skip over verse 10 and go with me now to 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, for one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, Sarah seems an odd example of faith. Not because she's a woman, but because she seems to be an example of someone who actually lacked faith. You might remember, she goaded her husband into having a child through another woman. She doubted that it could be through her. And when the angels promised Abraham that he would soon have a child through Sarah, she just laughed at the idea. And there's also a textual difficulty here. What's translated conceive, actually in the Greek, has only been used for the male as producing seed. Never used of the woman. 
So what might be closer to what our author is trying to say is that Abraham with Sarah was able to beget that heir. Well, however we take the exact meaning, the point here is that Sarah is brought into the roll call. And the Genesis account makes it very clear. It is only by Sarah that Abraham could beget that heir of the promise. No substitute would do. And however it's doubtful, Sarah's faith might appear. I mean, our author doesn't mention it, but look, Abraham had his doubts too. Abraham also laughed when he uh, God had promised him a son. In fact, Abraham says, just let it be my servant. Okay? Let him have it. And twice, twice now out of fear, he disgraced his wife by making her pretend that she was not his wife. Once he goes into Egypt, he leaves the promised land because he doubts God's ability to provide for him in famine. And so he goes into exile himself. And so, you know, she may have had her doubts, but her husband had his share of doubts as well. But by including her in here, though, what it's a reminder for us is that Abraham's faith did not just include himself. His wife also. She also had to have faith. And, and how be it, let's say her faith was shaken. Our author believes that when, the time, when it came to the time, she had that strong faith. And we're going to skip over verses 13 to 16 and go over to 17 now. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And look, it's a great test of faith, to be sure, isn't it? To be commanded to sacrifice your son. Okay? That's bad enough. But our author says, look, there's an added twist here. Isaac is the heir of that promise. God promises Abraham and Sarah that it's going to be through Isaac. Now God is ordering his death. And so how does Abraham... How does he make sense of this command? Well, according to our author, Abraham expects a resurrection. Now, it's not an idea that our author is just kind of just making up, pulling out of thin air. He looks back at the Genesis 22 passage, and there Abraham tells his servants, who have gone with them a certain distance, he says, wait for us, that he and his son would return. Now, I have to say, when I read that passage back in Genesis, it it would not have been my interpretation, but when you think about it, I mean, how else do you explain? You have Abraham believing Isaac is the heir that God has promised. God has ordered him to sacrifice him. How else can you explain what Abraham did? Clearly, his faith took him to a higher understanding of the power of God. All right, let's go on to verse 20. By faith, 
Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So we have Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. They're commended for doing the same thing, which was pass on blessing to their sons. Now, we look at this and we think, well, compared to what Abraham had to do by faith, this is pretty anticlimactic, isn't it? And we'll have to grant, I mean, their examples are not on the same level as Abraham's, but nevertheless, our author, he regards this commonplace act of blessing their sons as very significant for faith. Now, what is it that they're displaying faith in? Well, that God would keep his promise. The promise that he had made to Abraham, and then successfully that he had made to Isaac, that he had made to Jacob. And so Isaac, like his father, you think of this, he only produced one heir, one child. Jacob, now he produces 12 sons, but what happens? They have to go out of the promised land. They're in exile. And when Jacob is passing on his blessing, he's passing on that blessing while he's in Egypt. And he has to have the, the faith that somehow a great nation was going to come forth out of Egypt into that promised land and be established again there. So there is this faith holding on to the promise of God that they're exhibiting when they pass the blessing on to their uh, sons. Now go with me to verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, here, here are Joseph's directions about what's to happen when, he's, when he dies. He says this in Genesis 50. I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there. He's got that faith. They're going to go back. And his request, by the way, was fulfilled. We're told in Exodus 13 that when Moses led the people out of Egypt, that he took the bones of Joseph with him. So in all of these instances of faith, we're to understand that this faith is specific. And it's namely that God will keep his promise. His promise of land, his promise of descendants. It might take many years. They are going to face many obstacles, but God's promise will be fulfilled and they will remain faithful because of it. See, it's faith in this promise of land and descendants. That's what keeps them going. And you would think, if this is all we had, that that would be enough to extol. And yet our author makes clear that the object of faith, that land, it's not the real object that they're hoping for. That land, that piece of properties between Egypt and the Euphrates, 
It's significant to be sure. But its real significance lies in what it points to. We're going to read now the verses that we've been skipping over. Look with me in verse 10. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In fact, there at verse 10, it makes that reference to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And for those of you who have been with me, as we've been going through chapter after chapter, does this remind you of something earlier that he's already has talked about? Let me read to you from chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And he Remember, he was speaking of how the earthly tabernacle, that was a, a copy of the real tabernacle that is in heaven. He talks about how the rituals and the, the sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament, they are copies. They are, shadow, they are but shadows of things that are real in, in heaven. Again, in chapter 9, 24, he speaks of Christ entering into the holy places that are not made with hands. They are copies of the true things they are, that are in heaven itself. And so this is what our author is doing here. He's making the point of this, that faith, yes, it looks at earthly things. That's true. But it looks beyond them. Indeed, it looks through them, by faith, to a greater reality that they portray. So Abraham, he was looking forward, he's looking forward to his, to his homeland, to that promised land, but what he's really looking forward to is that city that has foundations, everlasting foundations, not built by man, but by God. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, as much as they look to that earthly homeland and to having all of those biological descendants, what they looked for, what they longed for was a place without famine, without enemies, without heartache. Their real desire was for a heavenly home. And so it was faith in that vision, in that desire, in that promise. That is what enabled them to, to weather the long 
drought of fulfillment. To, to weather all the, the fits and the starts of, of gaining God's promised land and children, and then they got to leave it and they come back. And he's making a point here. Look, they could have gone back to their, to their father's homeland. Abraham and Sarah had opportunities to return to their family's homeland across the Euphrates. Isaac could have returned there for his bride, Rebekah. He could have just gone back there himself, got married there and settled down there. Jacob, who did go there, gained two wives and started his families. He could have remained there. And then there's Joseph. And you think, Joseph, why, why do you care where your bones are laid? Well, they remember the promise. promise of a real homeland of, what, of which the earthly land, that signified, it was a symbol, it was a seal for them. And we can see where our author is going with this, can't we? Remember, he's trying to, to reach his, his, his readers. They're going through hard times. And he's saying, look, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes to your real home. Life is hard, and for them there's actual persecution. And what no doubt started off with great promise with them when they embraced their Messiah, they're finding that life continues on. And it's hard. And it's just day after day. And like their forefathers in the wilderness, they're starting to get a little bit disillusioned. And they're disillusioned with this promised land that they have here on earth. And our author is saying, look. Look at Abraham. Look at Sarah. Hey, they waited 25 years for the birth of one son. And they never take ownership of the promised land. They wander all their lives as nomads, as do, by the way, Isaac and Jacob. Joseph, he's sold into slavery. Now, he... He rises to the highest heights that he can, but he remains in Egypt. The only time he goes back into the promised land is to bury his father. Then he goes back. All of them die, as our author says, not having received the things promised. On the other hand, nevertheless, they died in faith and not in despair. By faith, they're able to come to the end of their lives in faith. And so the same is called of us all. All of us who claim Jesus is our Messiah, who have claimed the promise of God, as uh, this promise of everlasting life as our own. We are called never to lose sight of that promise that promise of an everlasting inheritance. And with that sight before us, we are then to carry on faithfully before God while he grants us earthly life. Y'all are all familiar, I'm sure, with the Narnia books. Maybe you've seen some of the movies. And there's one book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treadham. C.S. Lewis has a character there named Reepy Cheek, the mouse. He's a large mouse. And the, the crew of the ship that they're on, the Dawn Treader, they have been sailing westward on and on and on. 
And that crew is starting to have its doubts about what's going to happen. And they're going to, they, they start to debate whether or not to turn back. And Ribichib usually is not uh, shy at all about voicing his viewpoint, but he says nothing. And finally, someone asks him, well, what about you? And this is what Ripichip says. My own plans are made. While I can, I shall east in the dawn treading. When she fails me, I paddle east in my little boat. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Ripuchi was a mouse of faith. He had faith in the promise of God of a heavenly homeland. And so his, his faith actually made his life simple. Continue on. Just keep going towards his destination. He'll leave circumstances to his Lord. By faith, the only thing that's called of him is to remain faithful. And if he should die before receiving his reward, he will nevertheless, he will die in faith. And so the same is for us. Now we might be called, some of you no doubt have been called at times as Abraham to perform a great sacrifice. And you've wondered why you have gone through these hard times and you were called to make the sacrifices that you've made. All of us are called as we're Isaac and, and Jacob to just do the ordinary things of life, but to do them with expectation. And I wonder at times, which is the more difficult? When a crisis arises, we often find within ourselves the ability to arise to that occasion. But it can be in the small things, daily living, in ordinary settings, among ordinary people, that can just kind of quietly lead us astray. The question for us is, will we remain faithful in extraordinary times and in ordinary times? Will we keep our eyes on the prize? Will we keep our eyes on that city that God has prepared for us? You know, it's interesting that the author comes up suddenly with this term city, the vision of one in heaven. You know, you think back. Eden was what? It was a garden. It was not a city. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're promised a whole land. No author until ours speaks, and not even until we get to this chapter in, these, in this passage, speaks of a heavenly city. And yet that's where Scripture ends. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, and chapter 22. Here, Hear how Revelation, John in the book of Revelation, first describes him. It's in Revelation 1, beginning in verse, I mean 21, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Is this not a vision, a promise worth believing in? This is not a a vision, a promise worth having faith in God that he will fulfill it. Is this not a vision worthy of our remaining faithful to God as long as he gives us breath? We give you praise, our God, for such a vision. And this vision that is a promise that will come true. Keep it ever before us as it it was kept before Abraham and Sarah and all those who went after them in faith, all those who have preceded us by faith. Keep it before us. Keep us ever faithful to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together the deep, deep love of Jesus.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.